We need to aim to be done around noon, if that's okay. So we have about 15 <laughs> minutes to connect afterwards before the kids are... Brilliant, good. thank you. Okay, that's great. I'm in. I'm all in. All in. Awesome. Okay. Um, hey, good morning. This is great to be with you this morning. Really, really honored to be here. Um, I grew up in a home in, in a small town, Manitoba, called Elkhorn, uh, a town of like 500 people. Uh, I... I uh, I remember um, uh, I graduated with 10 people in my class, so when I went to Briarcrest after high school, I felt like I'd arrived. You know, the reason I went there was because I wanted to be a part of a large school. Do you know what I mean? And now my kids are going to schools where there's like hundreds and hundreds of people uh, in them, and I realized that my school wasn't as big as I thought it was. But we didn't have a lot to do um, in our community except play sports. Sports were a really big deal, and I, I'm not giving up any of my minutes right now. I want you to know these are still... Like, but you know what? In order for you and I to get paid, <laughs> we got to take the offering. Take so the, the offer, offering. ushers will be taking the I offering as we okay <laughs> as we preach. Keep going. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't think I've ever had that experience before. That's great. Thank you so much, Mel. I love that. Um, so we loved uh, we loved sports a lot. Sports were a part of our journey, and uh, and in many ways, I, I still love sports. Both of my boys are 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 heavily active in basketball and skateboarding, those sort of things, so we enjoy that very much. Now, the other part of my family that was significant was music, and my, my sister was really musical in our home, and, uh, and, and she was amazing. Like, when she would play the piano, she, um, she just had this ability to have, I guess the best way to express it would be freedom. You know, she didn't need words and, or lyrics, sorry. She didn't need music. She could just play, and when she played, it was encaptivating to the people around her, and I would come, and I would watch her play, and she would perform, and people would just be so engaged and attracted to what was taking place, and so I remember thinking to myself, man, I would love to be able to do that as well, and so uh, I went to my mom, and, and it might have been like one of her best moments of, of raising me as a, as a young boy when I came to her and said, mom, I would love to take piano lessons and so all of a sudden she's thinking I have this second child who's going to engage in in music and and I was excited because I wanted to be like my sister and perform for the people you know what I mean and so I I began taking music lessons now unfortunately my experience with music lessons was a little different than my sister's experience with music lessons in fact I really discovered quite quickly that um, that while uh, I didn't mind playing with one hand when I had to begin to learn how to play with two hands that my hands didn't really like playing together very much and this this suddenly wasn't an expression of freedom this quickly became really hard work and and I'll be honest with you I wasn't super interested in really hard work but my mom was really interested in teaching me hard work and she still had dreams of maybe experiencing freedom and so I began to practice and practice for nine years I took piano lessons and every day not every day but most days I would practice a half hour to kind of you know try to fight for freedom now half hour might be a little bit of an exaggeration we used to have we used to have the you know this timer that would tick you know what I mean and, and it would, I'd have 15 minutes at a time and if mom was out of the room I'd kind of move that forward just a bit and so then all of a sudden ding it'd go off and I'd leave and mom would be like man that seemed like that went by quick and I said time flies when you're having fun mom so we just fire right through that thing you know and and move on. Yeah, it was funny because um, people will sometimes come to me and they'll be like, hey, Sid, like, uh, you did this for, for nine years. Why, why didn't you quit? And, and, and here was the point. Like, 
I didn't have too much freedom in it, and I didn't really enjoy the work, but I loved the performing. And, and every year, we would have this thing called the festival, and you would perform at the festival, and then if you won, you, like, got a medal or something, and so I thought, yeah, I could do this, and so I would get my one song. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm right now, I work at a Christian school in Kelowna, and I help out with things, and their music teacher, who's, who's really well-educated, goes, you did nine years of Royal Conservative Music? He's like, Sid, you have got to play music for, like, chapel and stuff. I said, dude, I can play one song. Like, that's all I got, and I practiced, you know, I would practice that one song, and then when the festival would come, I would play it, you know what I mean? And I'd do this, because that's what musicians did, and, and yeah, <laughs> and shockingly, I would win, you know, and, and so I was winning these festivals, which I thought was a huge joke, because I kind of hated it, and my sister would be angry, because she really loved it, and this was kind of an expression of who she was, and I'm just like, I'm faking it, man, I'm winning. I was really, really excited about the whole journey, until uh, grade 11, I remember so clearly, grade 11 comes, do the festival, I win the medal, I think that's awesome, and then at the end of the week, my mom says to me, she's like, hey, um, they have this concert happening at the end of the festival, kind of this wrap-up program, I want you to come with me to go watch this, I'm like, that is a really bad idea, you know, like, I've suffered quite enough, thank you so much, so we're not, I'm not winning anything, I'm not in on this idea, but my dad decides he wants to go, so I'm just like, that's weird, okay, I'm in, so we, so I do this, and, and, and what happened is, um, at the end of this concert, they were handing out kind of like this grand prize to three uh, festival players, uh, and, and my name was called as one of the three that got the grand prize, and it was supposed to be this surprise, a mom thought that was great because her child is like this musician now, and so I remember walking up to the stage thinking, man, I just did it again, like I, 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 I won again, and so I got up to the stage, and then I discovered what the grand prize was. It was a scholarship to a week-long music camp, like, like real musicians, and I'm like, I am losing at this game, you know, it was so funny, because going to the camp, I just remember thinking to myself, like, it's one thing to kind of hide it, and push through when you're doing, like, your one song, how do you hide at a music camp, I remember just being so terrified that someone was going to expose me at this music camp, you know, and sure enough, I'm sitting in the back of this room, they're doing this class stuff, and I would always hide all day in the back of the room, I don't even know why, I went, but I'm pleasing my mom. That was a good idea. So I'm, I'm sitting at the back, and all of a sudden the teacher goes, hey, I want to play this duet. I need someone to help me. Sid, get on up here. I'm like, no, worst day ever. And I remember just coming to the front and sitting down beside him. He goes, okay, we're going to play this. And I just go, excuse me, sir. He's like, yeah. I go, I can't play that. And he's like, no, no, it's really easy. I'm like, I know for you and for all of them, really easy. For me, not so much. I can't. He goes, no, we're playing it. I go, okay. Bah. He's like, you really can't play this. Correct. Go sit down. All right, fine. That was the end, right? <laughs> you know, um, it's so interesting to me. I look at that experience. And, uh, and it's funny how different people's experience with things like music can be. Like I look at my sister and there is this, this freedom in what she does. And it invites people in. Do you know what I mean? It's so attractive to the people around her. And they just kind of become engulfed in the experience. And they want in. And they want to see more. And they want to be a part of it. When I do it, not so much inviting in. For me, like hard work labor. And if people really saw what was taking place, the truth of the matter is, they probably wouldn't want anything to do with it anyways. And, and if I'm really honest, while I'm pressing in, there's so many moments when I don't really want anything to do with it either. Like it was just... It was duty, you know? No desire, just duty. Do you ever find that, that that's sometimes how our experience in terms of our faith goes and our relationship with Jesus Christ? 
that there are some people who seem to have this wonderful, almost whimsical experience with the Father. That even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of the tears which are real, and even in the midst of the suffering that's real, there's still this type of freedom that seems to be a part of their journey that becomes very attractive to the culture around them as they go to live out the kingdom reality that God has called them to, even in the midst of the difficulty and the hurt because of the freedom that they, I mean, within the freedom they experienced it. And then there's those of us where, where it seems so different than that. That our faith journey has very little to do with our desires, but it's more about the simple duty that we're just grinding and we're, we're reading the commandments and we're going, okay, if this is what the commandment says, fine, I'm in, I'll do this. What, God, you're asking me to do that? Ah, okay, fine, I'm in. I'll just one step in front of the other. And I'll be honest with you, in the seasons when I'm living that way and I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to do kingdom work in my community, the community isn't really all that interested to have me out there doing that kingdom work. Because what they're seeing in me is something that's not attractive to them at all. And so I begin to ask the question, okay, what does it look like for me to live all in in terms of my relationship with Jesus Christ in such a way that actually becomes inviting and transformative in the communities that God has placed me? Um, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 to 46, Jesus is speaking about what the experience of his kingdom looks like, what it means for us to really enter into, his, into this kingdom journey that he has called us to. And listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Did you hear what he said there? He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when the, found, when the man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. This was everything for this individual. For him to actually enter into the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom, it was an all-in experience that God was calling him to. You know, sometimes I think um, we don't really understand or get what God is actually asking of us. Um, as I've traveled and, and, and spoken to students about following Jesus, it's, it's interesting, I've often used unique phrases, I think. And maybe not so much unique, but uh, phrases that I've heard other people use when it comes to invitation to follow Christ. I've heard phrases like, um, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Have you heard that when people have invited people to come follow Jesus? They'll say things, accept him as your personal Savior. Or they'll say things like, ask Jesus into your heart or invite Christ into your life or, or make a decision for Christ. And I, I think these phrases, phrases can be helpful. They can um, kind of create this sense of what it might look like to follow after Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, when I look at these phrases, I realize that these actually aren't phrases that Jesus used. As I look through the scriptures, I actually can't find them in the scriptures. Do you know what the phrase is that Christ used more than any other phrase when it, when it came to being his disciples? He would say over and over again in different ways, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, be willing to suffer, and follow Christ, okay? 
So this is actually what he said. More than anything else, the phrase that he used over and again was, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There was this all-in calling that Christ made really clear if we were going to enter into the kingdom experience as he was calling us to. This is true of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 2.20, when Paul is speaking about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus, he says, I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Do you hear that language? He says, it's not even my life anymore. Like, like this is is Christ. All of me is him. I'm dead to myself. It's completely Christ. This This is true what he's called us to. And it's actually right. When we understand what Christ has done for us, it makes sense that that our commitment to him would be an all-in commitment. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Did you hear that? In view of what Christ has done on the cross, and all of Romans, like 1 to 11, is everything about what Christ has done. It says, in view of that reality... You too should offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This this is the foundation of what it means to be his follower, that we give up everything and we are all in to what he's calling us to do. Now, of course, this isn't easy, is it? It's it's countercultural. Our culture over and over again says to our kids that, hey, you know what, like the way to life is to express yourself, to be yourself, to pursue whatever you feel within you is what you want to do. So it's counter-cultural, and it's, it's actually counterintuitive. Our natural bend, our sinful inclination, is to do what feels good for ourselves, not what God is calling us to. So, so this is hard, and, and this is difficult. And, and for me, I just find that, that in my journey, there are many seasons where, where my act of discipleship because it doesn't come naturally, seems to be just this hard work effort that I'm engaged in. I remember um, a number of years ago, I was actually up in Prince George visiting with my cousin, who was Mel's youth pastor at the time. And Peyton at that time was about five, and Cole was about three years old. And, and, and I remember I was, um, I was sitting, we were sitting in the living room talking, Peyton was playing with some toys over here. And all of a sudden, Cole kind of waddled over. He'd, he'd been learning how to walk, so he had that kind of down. He had bright, wonderful red hair, just like his mom. And he waddles over to where Peyton is playing, and he takes one of Peyton's toys. And all of a sudden, Peyton looks at Cole and goes, Cole, that's my toy. Give it back. And he grabs his toy from Cole, and Cole kind of plops down and shakes his head. And I thought to myself, ooh, this is going to get kind of interesting. So, so Cole kind of, he gets up, and he kind of looks at his brother, and then he moves in, and he takes another toy. And Peyton's like, Cole, that's mine. And he knocks him down, and Cole goes, and then pops right back up, turns to his brother, goes, ah, and then he jumps on his brother and begins to try to eat him. Now, luckily, he had no teeth, so this was not really that big of a deal, but so he's kind of gnawing on him. And then I just kind of think, well, maybe I should kind of intervene at this point. So I come in, and I take Cole, and I sit him down, and I look at Cole, and I say, stay, boy. So then I turn to Peyton, and I turn to Peyton, and I go, son, and he goes, what, Dad? I go, I go son, I need you to, um, to share with your brother. He's like, pardon? I said, son, I, I need you to share with your brother. And he goes, but I don't want to share with my brother. I said, oh. I said, that's interesting, son. I said, because if you don't share with your brother, I'm going to help you share with your brother, and you're not going to want that either. So I think, you know, let's share with him. So finally, Peyton looks at me and goes, fine. Here, Cole. And he throws his toy at his brother, right? And he, he shares. Now, when I look at that, you know, in one sense, I think to myself, well, he did what I wanted him to do. But in another sense, he wasn't even close, was he? 
Because I wanted something more from him than just his action. I actually wanted his heart. I wanted him to want to share with his brother. And I think sometimes when the father looks at us and he sees our acts of discipleship where we are dutifully doing the things that he's calling us to do, and we create the list, and so we follow the list, and we just we dive in. I wonder if sometimes the Father doesn't look at us, and there's sorrow in his heart. Because I guess in one sense, we're, we're doing what his word says. But in another, we're not even close, you know? I think sometimes our act of duty is maybe farther from the kingdom than we really realize. And I think there's some real problems that go along with simply living out our faith as acts of duty. I think, one, it leads to legalism, where we begin to serve methods instead of our master. I think, two, it can lead to pride, where we begin to rely on our strength instead of the strength of the Father. And third, perhaps worst of all, I think it leads to failure. Instead of honor, I think our efforts tend to bring dishonor to our master. Do you know what I mean? I mean, track with me for a second. Let's say um, um, when this day is done and I'm about to head home, I reflect back, let's pretend, on a conversation that I had with Mel and LaDonna um, uh, yesterday. Uh, let's pretend that yesterday I'm inquiring them about healthy marriage. And Mel looks at me and goes, oh, Sid, what you need to do is you need to get flowers for your wife when you go home. Like, that's going to be a game changer. You should do that. That's going to be awesome. I go, oh, Okay, that makes sense to me. I'm in. So let's say I get on my plane this afternoon and I go home and I think to myself, I must get flowers for Jen. Must get flowers for Jen. Great. I get off the plane, I get in my car, and I drive to Safeway because I'm a little cheap. I'm not going to lie. Okay, so I get to Safeway. And as I get out of the car, I bang my toe on the curb. You know, toe starts to bleed. I'm like, oh, this is stupid. I go inside. I, I, I go to buy the flowers. They're not like 15 bucks. They're 20 bucks. That's problematic to me. And so fine, I do it anyways. Mel said, okay, I'm in. I get the flowers. I drive home. On my way home, you know, speeding a little bit because the football game's on. I like to get a little bit of that. And then, and you know, I get a ticket. So now this is like, now these flowers have cost me like $250. I get, you know, I get to the door. And as I'm about to go in, Jen comes to the door and she's like, oh, babe. And it, that really happens, by the way. But let's pretend, okay? So I get to the door and she's like, oh, babe, you got me flowers. Thank you. And as she says that, I look at her and go, yep, I got you flowers. Got to be honest, didn't really want to get you flowers. <laughs> but Mel said, I got to do it. So here they are. And you know what? I banged my foot when I tried to get to the store to get the flowers. So that's bleeding on my socks and shoes. I'll have to get new socks. And and it costs, like, man, it costs way more than I thought it would. Awesome. Got a stupid ticket trying to rush to get home to you, you know, so I wouldn't kill the flowers on the way. And I said, this has been really hard, babe, but here's your flowers. Hope you love them, right? Like, so, okay, a couple things. Number one, I'm not getting through that door, okay? So that's, that's closed. I'm out for long periods of time. Number two, if somebody was observing what was taking place, uh, they wouldn't probably think much of me for sure, and they would wonder what to think of my wife because what were my actions saying about how much I love and actually care for my wife? Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't bring her honor. It would dishonor her. And I wonder if sometimes our actions of all in, while we think they're actions of obedience, fine, God, you say this, fine, I'm in, I'll do it. And we feel like we're engaged in the all-in journey if maybe we're farther from the kingdom than we actually realize in those moments. I wonder if there's not something more that Christ is actually calling us to. And I think the passage indicates that. Listen to what he says here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, 
When the man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought them. You hear that? He sold everything. I mean, this isn't small. This is everything. And I remember, and I think to myself, how hard must this have been for him? Apparently not that hard. Did you hear what Jesus said? It says that in his joy he went and sold everything. This was not a hard decision for him. He had found something that was infinitely greater than anything he possessed. And so when he discovered that, he said, I'm in everything, all of me, because what I'm gaining is infinitely more than what I have to give up. This is Christ's call on our life. You see, we naturally pursue what we perceive as best for us, what we perceive as as most pleasurable, correct? And we naturally tend to avoid what we think will bring us like the least pleasure, I remember a few years ago, I'm sitting in the hot tub with, with Cole, my, my younger son, and I just said to him, I said, Cole, um, if you could change anything about your dad, you, you know, what would you change? That's a vulnerable question. You know, I made sure no one else was around, so I wouldn't really be held too accountable to that, but I just, I, I asked the question, and he's quiet for a second, he looks at me and goes, Dad, I go, yeah, if I could change anything, I go, yeah, he goes, I wish you'd skateboard with me more. And I remember just thinking to myself, son, that is not going to happen, okay, like, we need to, let's reflect again, because here was the deal, I tried that, I wanted to be like the dad who learned to skateboard with his kids, and I thought it was kind of cool for like a short period of time until I fell down on the stupid skateboard and broke my arm, and then I was like, I'm not doing this anymore, like when you're three, you break your arm, you kind of bounce back, it heals quickly, when you're 45, this is hurt now the rest of my life, right, like that's just, this is, and I don't love hurting the rest of my life, so I'm like, son, this is, I'm not going to do this, we have this natural disposition to avoid pain and pursue what we perceive as pleasurable. And I think it's part of what God has kind of placed in us. You know, when it comes to the Great Commission, or the Great Commandment, sorry, Jesus said that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He acknowledges that we naturally pursue what we perceive as best for us. So what he's saying is, in the same way, when you're hungry, you pursue food, you should pursue that for other people. In the same way that you long for community and acceptance, with the same passion and consistency that you pursue, you should provide that for others. In the same way that you want to be provided for, you go provide. This is the foundation of what it means for us to radically love other people. Um, and he says, when it is the context of marriage, he says that husbands should love their wives as they love themselves. He says, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. He, he acknowledges that we naturally pursue what we perceive as best for ourselves, and that should be how we go to radically sacrifice for others, that that should, that should be a framework for how we go out and we pursue and engage others. So then, what does this mean for us in terms of our journey with Jesus? Here's what I think it means. I think the all-in journey with Christ is a battle, okay? I really do. I think that there is a fighting that needs to take place. But, but here's what I want to suggest. Well, there is a doing that must happen, And at times, there are duties that we engage in that we don't feel like doing. That is not the ends. We engage the duty as a way of opening our eyes to the reality of who Christ is so that he can begin to affect not just our duty but also our desires. I wonder if the battle that we really need to fight is the battle to see Christ because here's what I think will happen. When we truly begin to see the reality of Jesus Christ, that changes everything. And we realize that whatever we have to give up, and it's much that we give up when it comes to the kingdom, it is nothing compared to what we gain in the reality of Jesus Christ. 
This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 said that the evil one has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ because he knows that if we really see Jesus, that's going to transform everything. And all of a sudden, we are engaging in ways that we have never engaged before. It is true that Christ is ultimate. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It is right that we are commanded to be joyful in Christ always. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And it's not about being emotionally unrealistic about the pain that we find ourselves in. It means that in the midst of the pain and the sorrow and the tears that are real, still there is hope because we know this isn't the end. There's something more coming. And not only is it true and not only is it right, but when we begin to live this way, when our disposition to be all in is driven by a passion for Christ, it begins to transform the communities around us. So track with me again. I finish my time here. I remember Mel's words that I should get flowers for my wife when I get home. And so I fly home, plane lands, and I get out. I drive to Safeway because I'm still cheap. And when I get to Safeway, I get out of the car and I smash my foot. Ah, oh, break my, break, whatever, break my foot, whatever, no problem. I'm pushing for it. I get inside. You know, the flowers are like 15 bucks, but I'm so excited about it. So I tip the lady another 15 bucks, 30 bucks, expenses, nothing. I get in the car, driving home as fast as I can because I can't wait to see Jen. Boom, get the ticket. Frustrated that I'm paused from seeing her, but the price is nothing compared to what I gain. And I get home finally, and I open the door, and I go, baby. And she goes, oh, my word, baby, flowers, thank you. And I go, yes. I go, honey, I go, um, I got to be honest with you, this costs a lot, like I smashed my foot, but I said, that is nothing, because you are worth way more than a foot, okay, so I can get rid of that thing, I've got you, best day ever, and then she's like, but honey, I saw that, you know, I was checking online, I saw what you paid, I said, honey, th that cost is nothing, I mean, I even got a speeding ticket, but no problem, I've already arranged that I'll mow lawns for the next, like, four weeks, just to make it up, because I need to get, you are the best thing that's ever happened to me, you know what happens in that? moment I definitely get invited in the house okay like that is no problem I am in and if anyone else sees or understands what happened they begin to wonder I wonder what it is about her that drives him so nuts I would sure like to get to meet her because there's something different that's happening there do you hear that when we begin to engage Christ in this way and the beauty of Jesus Christ begins to drive our duty it drives our actions and in the hard moments and the desert seasons, we engage the duty even when we don't feel like it because maybe engaging the duty will reawaken us to the beauty of Jesus Christ. So it's all about Jesus, man. And when that becomes the very center of what we're about when it comes to his kingdom, my friends, it changes us and it begins to transform and change our communities. And this is what Christ has called us to. Okay, so how do we fight to see? Real quick, three ways. Number one, we pray. We ask for God's grace to awaken us over and over again to the beauty of his son. Number two, we preach the gospel. But we don't just preach the gospel to others, we preach the gospel to our own souls, right? In the dark seasons, we remind ourselves over and over again of who Christ is and what he's done on the cross and who he is for us. We, we follow the practice of David when in Psalm 42 he said, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in the Lord, yet will I trust him, right? And he preaches to his soul. And in those seasons, we fight by preaching to our souls the reality of who Christ is, and we ask him to renew our vision of who he is. And then number three, we realize that this is not the end game. 
we renew our vision for eternity, that there is a day coming when we will be intimate with Christ in a way that satisfies the deepest longings of who we are. And we know that what we experience here is light and temporary compared to what is to come. Oh, it's real and heavy now, absolutely. But when we have a vision of eternity, we realize compared to that, we can endure because there's something more coming. And if we become a community like that, if our youth can have a sense of that, my friends, that can change everything. And that is my prayer, that God would lead us in that way, that we would be all in. Let me pray. Father, I love you and thank you for this time. And I thank you for who you are and for what you have called us to. And I pray that this year by your grace, both in our church community and also with our students, that your Holy Spirit would awaken us in new ways to the beauty of who you are. And that as we see you, we would become like you. And that the sacrifices we make for the kingdom would be real sacrifices, but for us they would be small compared to what we have in you. Father, make that, um, just, just, just make that truth so deep in our hearts and our minds. Uh, for your glory and for our joy in your holy name. Amen. Hey, we've got an announcement from Dave, so go ahead, Dave. Why don't you lead us here? So